The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. If you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. It's already been read and we're only going to have time to look at the first half of this chapter where we begin to speak about the binding of Satan, the uh, thousand years of the reign of Christ, and the events that happen after the thousand years are completed. Next week, Lord willing, we'll take a look at what is called the Great White Throne Judgment, which takes place at the, in the second portion of this chapter. Let's just read the passage, uh, verses 1 through 6 again. As always, give careful attention as the Word of God is read among us. Revelation 20, verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Uh, we'll stop there. Okay, we're at a really iconic place in the scripture, and you're going to hear this preached a lot, and everybody, all the Christians know about the thousand-year reign of Christ, or the millennium. Millennia means a thousand years, and so you hear about the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now, what we've been trying to do in this uh, study to varying degrees of success is to introduce you to options in how to deal with what we see written in the book of Revelation. One of the views that we're, that we're considering is the most popular one within Western Christianity today, which is dispensationalism. And this is the one that takes things as literally as possible, and that's the stated goal. And so as we read what's been written here, a dispensational view would take all these things just as literally as possible, which means actually an angel with an actual chain 
and an actual bottomless pit and actually putting the chain on the devil and throwing him into the pit for a literal, actual 1,000 years, actual, literal, resurrected saints ruling and reigning during the 1,000 years. And when the 1,000 years are over, Satan then being released for a short time to gather those who are still on his side to make war. And you've heard that, right? A million times you've heard that preached. And uh, to me, I will just tell you, to me, uh, none of this makes any real sense. And <laughs> I mean, I know if it's, if it's your opinion that you need to take things as literally as possible, that's what you wind up with. But we believe Satan is a spiritual being. We don't believe he's physical, right? And, and so what kind of chain are you going to put on him? What kind of pit are you going to put him in? That's got to be symbolic for something in my mind. And then you run into this issue where the first resurrection happens, which actually in the dispensational view, it's the second resurrection. Because saints who have already been dead were resurrected when the rapture took place between chapters 3 and 4, where it doesn't mention anything about a rapture. But that's when the... That's when Jesus would come back and those who are in Christ and those who have already died in Christ would be raised and meet the Lord in the air in that classical rapture idea. Well, there's resurrected saints going to meet the Lord in the air. And so that would really be the first resurrection. And so now you get to this uh, additional first resurrection where now the saints are being raised again. Of course, the dispensationalists will tell you this. Well, these are the tribulation saints. These are the people who got saved during the tribulation, and now they're being raised up. And what you have for the thousand years then is you have unsaved people in the kingdom of God being ruled over by resurrected saints. So you've got all these cities and towns where the mayor is a saint who's been resurrected. He's there in his glorified body sign in whatever documents have to be signed on a daily basis for his work as the mayor. Everybody else in the town is regular people like us. Going to see the mayor is going to see this guy that's shining glory. He's in his resurrected body already. Imagine a council meeting like that. (laughs) You'd know which politicians you should be on the side of at that point, right? They'd be the glowing ones. You still have people voting for the other guys, though. (laughs) To me, none of this makes sense. You have this hybrid, weird reality during the thousand years where you've got all these millions of glorified, resurrected people walking around in charge of all these, of this remnant of people who have made it through this hellish uh, tribulation period, and now they're being put under the thumb of all these saints. Well, the saints have come, let's just say, by this time in the Revelation, if you're taking everything literally, what is left to rule over? Everything's been burned to a crisp. There's no more water. It was all turned to blood chapters ago. So now you've got these resurrected saints and their reward for having served Christ all their life is not that they live in heaven with him, but they have to come back to earth with him and rule over the ashes. All right. 
there's your reward. To me, I don't want to make fun of people who believe these things, but I just, what my, my desire is to introduce you to maybe a different way of thinking than what you've been told. And I'm here in a little bit, I'm about to give you what makes the most sense to me in terms of how to interpret what's been shown here in this passage. I'm going to give you my interpretation, and so if you think I'm being stupid or ridiculous, then, then you can mock me just like I'm now mocking dispensationalism. Okay? And I'll, I'll sit there and take it like a man if you want to mock my opinions at that point. No, I won't. I'll run away. <laughs> so that's the dispensational view. Everything taken as literally as possible. And for the reasons I've stated, I think there are a lot of problems with this. Now, the other views that we've looked at were preterism and historicism and idealism. And it's really fascinating as you read the commentaries. When you get to this passage, there's a lot of fungibility Ooh, there's a cool word there. There's a lot of fungibility, and it means that things can transfer over here. You can have an idealist believing this interpretation of the passage that we just read, and he's believing the same thing as the preterist over here. And the historicist over here is believing something a little bit different. But wait, there's another preterist who agrees with the historicist that doesn't agree with these other guys. So you've got this mishmash of ideas about how to interpret what's going on in the passage we just read. There are a couple of different issues, and I think we have to keep them straight. And we realize, I think if you've got the right idea on one of them, then the other idea kind of falls into place. The binding of Satan has to be connected to what's going on in the thousand year period. Those are connected ideas and you really have to consider them together. What you think the millennium is going to look like or looks like, depending on your, uh, your view of these things, what you think the character of the thousand years is, is going to have an effect on what you think the binding of Satan must actually be. And the other way it works around, it works the other way. I will confess to you right off the bat that we get to the end of the thousand years and Satan is loosed for a time. And even with the interpretation that I think is right, I, I don't understand. I don't, it's not that I don't understand the words, and it's not that the symbolism is too difficult for me. I confess to you, I don't know why God would do this. Why, after this very long period of peace and prosperity, having bound Satan, what's then the purpose of letting him loose again? I, to me, I have a hard time with it. I'll, I'll tell you at the end, hopefully, I'll tell you at the end the best that I've come up with. And I've read smart guys. I've read all the books by all the smart guys. And they get to this point and they're just telling me things. And I'm like, eh, really? Does that really do it for you? It doesn't do it for me. I haven't found anything that, I'll just be honest. I haven't found anything that I find terribly satisfying to my militarily trained mind. Does that mean I doubt the word of God? No, it just means... I'm going to have to see it to figure it out. You know, when it happens, then I'll say, oh, I get it now. He had to be released. Y'all seen that movie, uh, what's it called? The time travel one, uh, not time travel, the guy that's, 
Brendan Fraser's locked in the bomb shelter. Blast from the past. So there's a family that's in a bomb shelter. They think a nuclear war has happened. Y'all are nodding your heads. I'm going to explain the whole movie to you. And, and they're raising a child, and the dad is trying to explain the game of baseball to the child. And he's trying to explain how when the runner's on first base and somebody hits the ball, he has to, he must run to second base. And the child goes, why must he run? Well, he, he must. He has to. Why can't he run to third? Well, that's just not the way it's done. And the child is freaking out and he doesn't understand the rules of baseball until the day he's able to go out into the world and he, he's, they start to realize no war actually happened. So here's this guy who's been raised with a 1950s or 1960s mentality and hilarity ensues as he's now in the 80s and all that. And he goes to his first baseball game and he watches it. And he sees the guy standing on first base and somebody hits the ball and now he must run to second. And he stands up and he goes, I get it. He goes because he must. It's so simple now because I'm seeing it. I'm convinced it's the same way with Bible prophecy, not just this, but I'm convinced as we read through the Bible, you're going to find many times where Jesus fulfilled prophecies in ways that nobody expected. They were looking for this and that, and they had their four-color prophecy charts nailed to the wall, and they knew that when the Messiah come, came, he was going to do this, this, and this, and he came and did the opposite. But when you stand back and you see what the prophets actually said and the way that Jesus actually did it, what do you go? You say, I get it. Messiah must have done it that way. It had to be. How could all the Bible teachers of the day be so stupid as to not see how it was going to work out? Well, sometimes you just got to see it. And I'm convinced then it's easier to see fulfilled prophecy than it is to figure out prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet. Of course, there's no money in writing books about fulfilled prophecy. There is a lot of money, apparently, in writing books speculating on how it might all come to pass at the end. I'm in the wrong business. I should be writing those speculative books under an assumed name, of course. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just telling you, the release of Satan at the end of a thousand years is one of those things I'm going to have to see to understand why it had to be that way. It doesn't make sense to me. It's the word of God. It's going to happen however it's going to happen, but I, I can't explain it. I don't know why. So I probably just disqualified myself from being a Bible teacher by telling you I don't get it all. Let's start, though, with verse 4. I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image. They had not received the mark. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I'm going to tell you what I think is the best option here. An option that you will find a lot among those other three schools of thought. Preterism, 
idealism and historicism, an idea that you will find among people who hold all those, is the idea that what we see happening here, look in your Bibles, it says, and I saw the souls of those. Is that what your Bible has there? You may have some different word like lives. Okay, I saw the souls of those. Now, there are people who say that what we see happening here is people who have died. They've been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. So they, they die and now their souls are raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places. And so the ruling and the reigning that we see in this passage is the disembodied souls of the saints who are now in the presence of the Lord in heaven, and they are ruling and reigning from there. That's a very common view. And then it would say that the thousand year or the millennial reign of Christ is this reign of the uh, glorified saints in heaven who have not yet received their, their new bodies, but it's their souls up there. You'll see that a lot, and I probably haven't explained it well. Somebody that actually believes that would hate the way that I just went through it, but I'm, I'm trying to get it right and be honest. That doesn't make any sense to me. Because I do believe there's something to the idea that, you know, Paul said to be uh, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So I do believe that man, man male, and female was created in a dichotomous way where there's a <laughs> There's another big word. Hey, maybe I should be a pastor. I know big words. <laughs> Where man has a physical material element to him, but he also has this spiritual immaterial element to him. And to kill the body is, is not to kill the soul, but it's almost to separate it from its house. And, and Jesus, Jesus can take that soul and and you can spend some intermediate time between your death and the resurrection in the presence of Jesus. I'm not really sure how all that works, but I, could, I can kind of see that. If that's your theory about how it works when you die, then the soul that goes up to be with Jesus in heaven, where you think all you, we, we think that all our loved ones who are in Christ are with Jesus right now, waiting on resurrection bodies maybe, but immaterially, they're with the Lord. That's not really a resurrection, though. That's just a separation. That's the immaterial part being separated from the dead physical part, and then that immaterial part being granted eternal life and going up to be with Jesus. It, I think that's what the Bible teaches of the way this works after we die, but I, I don't know. The issue is you get into the timelessness of God. And in God's view, are we really spending a bunch of time up there apart from our resurrection bodies? Or is it possible that once we die, we're suddenly at resurrection day? Because timelessness and who knows? Okay, so I'll grant the idea that maybe there's this intermediate time where the spirit goes up to be with Jesus. But that's not a resurrection. The spirit didn't die. It's already been raised to new life through faith in Jesus Christ. And it goes up to be with Jesus. So for me, when, it, when the scripture refers to the dead coming to life and reigning with Christ for a thousand years, I, I don't think that's what that looks like. That, 
Does anybody know what I'm saying? Or I've just made it completely, I've made it a dumpster fire of mashed up ideas. Anybody following me? Okay. Now, what I think this is, I think it's, we're given a key in the original language. In verse 4, we see lots of actions being taken or not taken. They don't receive the mark. They rule and reign. They are beheaded. In the original Greek of the passage, all the verbs here are in the same verb tense, which smart guys who know Greek have told me this can indicate that all the action is taking place at the same time. That the time of, of uh, not worshiping the beast and not loving your life even unto death, the time of resisting taking the mark is the same time as being seated on thrones and ruling and reigning with Jesus. Well, how can that be? Because of the gospel? Because of what we read about in other places? Let me just say it straight. One of the New Testament's favorite images to use for what it means to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ is resurrection. Right? Let me give you a couple of those. I'm just going to read them for you. You can copy down the references. I encourage you to look at them later. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 5 through 6. Ephesians 2, 5 through 6, Paul says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our trespasses. It is by grace you have been saved. Now get this, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's us. Where are you? You're on the earth. <laughs> Covenantally, you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. And where is Christ seated? Same book says he's seated above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. You're seated with him. You're seated with him at the right hand of God. You're seated with him in a place of power and authority over all these created dominions. And you're still getting the crud beat out of you by the enemies of God. That's all happening at the same time. And one doesn't cancel out the other. When Paul says we are made more than conquerors, he meant that in contrast with the things that were actually happening. Persecution and distress and tribulation and peril and nakedness and sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. In the intermediate time between the first and second coming of Christ, the Christian victory is always kind of in the middle of a fallen world. But it's real victory. It's real conquering. It's just the bad guys, sudden they get their punches in once in a while. All right? Everybody got that, right? Let me read you another passage here. It's Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were raised with him 
through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our trespasses. What is that? That's resurrection. You were dead. Through faith in Christ, you were raised. One last one, 1 John chapter, chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. We pass from what? Death to life. What's that called? Being raised, being resurrected. I just thought of another word, Colossians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ, yet I live. Not me, but Christ in me. Death and resurrection in that, in that same verse. Now, I do want you to turn with me. We're going to look at the Gospel of John in chapter 5. Keep your finger in Revelation 20. We'll look at the Gospel of John in chapter 5. I remind you as we read through this that the author of this passage is the same as the author who wrote Revelation 20. Okay, So a guy who had been trained in the same way, who had many of the same thoughts. <laughs> so here we are in Revel or John chapter 5. Let's start in verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of death. So Jesus is here. I don't know if you caught this, but he's talking about two resurrections. Did you see that? He's talking about two resurrections. In verse 5, the dead hear the voice of the, or 25, the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. He said this, an hour is coming, and now is. When the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, and they live. Now, there's only one, there's only a couple of guys. One guy in my mind right now that I'm thinking about, Lazarus actually heard the voice of God and came up out of the tomb, but I'm convinced even that was meant as a symbol of spiritual resurrection. <clears throat> if you don't have a hard spot with making notes in your Bible, I'd suggest a couple of notes to you here. Look at verse 24. The last phrase is, he does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. I'd make some kind of note there that says something like spiritual resurrection or abbreviate however that is. However you want to abbreviate that, that's a spiritual resurrection. 
it's, it, Jesus said the time is now, the time is coming and now is when those who believe will be raised. Okay, and then in verse 25, it says the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. That's a spiritual death there. Who is spiritually dead? Everybody without Christ, spiritually dead. Verse 28, do not marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice. Who's in the tombs? Spiritually dead? Well, some and the physically dead are in the tombs. Okay, so talking about people coming out of the tombs, that's not just a a spiritual resurrection that we're talking about. That's raising up bodies. Okay, and it says there that both the just and the unjust will be raised, resurrected, everyone who is in the tombs. That hour is coming, Jesus said. Okay, so there's one hour that is and is coming where those who hear and believe are going to be raised. And there's another hour that is yet future when everybody's getting up out of the ground. Okay? My suggestion to you as we turn back to Revelation chapter 20 is that that's that's what we're seeing in this passage. The first resurrection. The first resurrection mentioned in verse 5, which rescues the one from the second death, it's spiritual resurrection. So those we see resisting the beast, those we see being beheaded for their testimony, those we see seated on thrones and reigning for a thousand years, it's those who have been spiritually raised with Jesus. Spiritual resurrection taking place there. Now for a thousand years, we've kind of already mentioned this as we've gone through the revelation. A thousand is probably a symbolic number. It may be, it could be literal, but generally the numbers in Revelation are fairly symbolic, and we've seen that as we've gone along. There's a psalm that says, for instance, that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? Which your answer should be, who owns the other ones? God owns the cattle on just a thousand, and point those out on the map to me. When he says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it means he owns all the cattle and all the hills, right? And so I think that's what it's talking about here. A thousand years means all the years. and <laughs> It means a very long time, okay? So I'm suggesting that what's being described here is the time from the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ in the flesh to the resurrection of all his people in the flesh. And it spans all this human history, Okay. And generally speaking, like I say, you can kind of hold the position that I've just told you, whether or not you're preterist or idealist or historicist. Now that we've come to this, though, oh, before we do this, I should mention, in this, if this is what the thousand years are, the rule and reign of the saints and the expansion of God's kingdom through the preaching of the gospel, if that's what the, the thousand years are, what would the binding of Satan be? Not throwing some dude in a pit with a chain, but it's the binding of Satan that comes when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to mention to you, I'll give you the reference here, but Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 29 is a story in which Jesus cast 
a demon out of a man who is both deaf and mute because of the demonic presence. He casts the demon out, and it's in this instance where the bad guys standing around say, oh, he's casting out demons because he's the ruler of the demons, or he's inhabited by the spirit of Beelzebub, or the ruler of the demons. And that's how he has authority. Jesus' answer to that charge is very instructive. His, his answer is, first of all, he doesn't say it like I'm going to say it. He says, first of all, if that's true, if that's how I'm casting out demons, you should be rejoicing anyway. Because what that means is that Satan's kingdom is divided. And it's eventually got to fall because it's divided. You've got one demon over here casting out these demons over there. How can the kingdom stand? So you ought to be happy about that even if you were right. You're not right, though, and I cast out demons not by Beelzebub, but by the Spirit of the living God. And if that's true, then you should rejoice because the kingdom of God has come upon you. Think about it. It's not that Jesus cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. He says there, Who's going to go take all the goods out of the strong man's house unless he first goes and, what, binds the strong man? That's what Jesus was doing. He wasn't using the power of the devil to cast out the devils. He was using the Spirit of God to bind the devil and, and spoil him of all his goods. That's exciting to me. And frankly, my friends, I think that's what's being talked about when it says the great angel, the messenger. Angel means messenger, right? And he has a great chain with which to bind the devil so that specifically he should not deceive the nations any longer. Verse 3. Understand before Jesus came, you had Israel, which had access to the word of God. And then you had all the nations of the earth, which were in utter pagan darkness except for a small remnant of Gentiles that God was pleased in his grace to bring into Israel. But outside of Israel, there was just darkness. It was Satan's world. I don't even believe Satan was lying when he said to Jesus, if you worship me, I'll give you all these nations because they've been given to me. There's a sense in which he wasn't really allowed to deceive them. But Jesus came and he changed all of that. And now... When that gospel is preached, I'm saying that's what the chain is. When that gospel is preached, Satan becomes powerless to hold these nations any longer. All the kingdoms of the world, they're coming in. We get to be part of that. Maybe we don't see it happening as much as we would like, but you and I who are in Christ, we are part of that. We share the message. That's blasting out the chain. <laughs> the enemy will be bound because of the power of the word of God. The gospel goes forth, binds the devil and all his forces, and the nations become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. That's good news. So now we get to the end of the thousand years and suddenly Satan's let out again and I have no clue why or what that's going to look like when it happens. All right? Any questions on this before we move forward? There's a little, man, I'm already, I'm already pressing, but there's stuff that you need to know. Forgive me, I'll try to fly through this. If you're not gonna forgive me, you can just grab a brownie on your way out. There's also cookies. 
Three big words. You have to know these to be saved. No, you don't need that. <laughs> Can you be a good and faithful Christian without knowing these words and what they mean? Yes, absolutely. But I think they'll help you as we get into these ideas. The dispensational view of the millennium that we mentioned here is technically called premillennialism. Pre means when do you think Jesus is coming back in relationship to the thousand years? Well, the dispensationalists and other premillennialists uh, will say, well, Jesus is going to come back and then the thousand years will start. So Jesus returns pre the millennium. Okay? We understand that? Post millennium, post millennial, which is what all the good guys believe. <laughs> That's a joke, too. But it's, it's what I believe. Post-millennialists believe that Jesus will return after the thousand years are over, meaning after this age is completed. He'll return and raise his people from the dead. We just looked at Psalm 110, which says that Jesus is now at the right hand of God and his enemies are being made his footstool. When that process is completed, Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until all his enemies have been placed under his feet. So he's not coming back until his enemies are defeated. So when is Jesus coming back at the end? Post-millennium. Now there are a strange breed called the amillennialists. And you'll find these in a lot of like mainstream churches, mainstream den denominations. Technically placing the A at the beginning of the word negates the word. Right? So they would, it's like no millennium. But they don't generally believe that. A lot of people who call themselves all millennialists, they just kind of believe the theory that I gave you at the first that uh, dead saints who are now in heaven, they're participating in rule with Jesus. So the millennium is just this heavenly thing that they are experiencing and we are in a different kingdom and we're not experiencing that. Uh, other all millennialists will say... Uh, Yes, Jesus is king, but there's nothing you can look at and actually see him ruling it. I've read amillennialists saying things like the only place where the kingdom of Jesus is visible, even with the eye of faith, is within the church. Okay, so there's some sense in which they would believe the church is the kingdom and we experience the kingdom as we're here. Okay, so very different characters uh, in terms of what you believe the millennium is and what you think it'll be like. They're of a very different character. And the reason I point that out to you is because I do believe there are consequences that are significant for Christian people to believe one or two or... It's going to matter which one of these you finally hold. One of the issues is, and I'm not making this up, I'm going to refer to things that have actually been said by leading dispensationalists. Premillennialism can have the effect of causing Christians who believe it to withdraw from engaging the world and engaging the culture for Christ because they say things like, and I'm not making this up, they say things like, to be involved in the culture with the gospel or to endeavor to correct social injustice that we see, that all this is is rearranging chairs, deck chairs 
on the Titanic because the world is going literally to hell in a handbasket. And for you to just worry about social ills and trying to fix and reform, you're just, you're just rearranging the deck chairs. The, the ship is sinking. Our only hope is to be zapped out of here. That's kind of what premillennialism is based on. That's what the dispensationalists believe. And I'm not just going kooky dispensationalist because every one of the views I've talked about, you've got your kooks on one side and your kooks on the other side. And you could quote from those guys and make everything sound stupid. I'm telling you, mainstream dispensationalist teachers, those who have their shows on television, those who have conferences and are well respected in, in American evangelicalism, they will say things like, if they were dispensationalists, they will say things like, all you're doing with trying to correct these social injustices with the word of God, all you're doing is trying to make a better place for people to go to hell from. There's a leading modern teacher who has said that. I won't embarrass him now by saying his name, Todd Friel. That's his name. You're just making, you're just making a better place for people to go to hell from. And you will find actual dispensationalists who cheer when bad things happen in the world. My chaplain in the Navy, after I first got saved, whenever we'd get bad news, bad things showed up on the news, he'd say, well, praise God, it means Jesus is coming. So the worst things, the worst things that happen and the worst things seem to get, the happier he was. You've heard that. I'm convinced this is not the attitude the Bible tells us to have. We're not supposed to rejoice when terrible things happen. And we're not supposed to act powerless when terrible things happen. The other thing that happens with amillennialism, what can happen, and it has happened in a lot of, uh, like I say, I'm not talking about the kooks on the fringes. I'm talking about mainstream people who believe amillennialism, this idea that the kingdom is either invisible or it's just being participated in by the saints in heaven, what that winds up doing is it separates the millennium, the kingdom of God, it separates it from the world you and I actually live in. And you, There's an actual theology promoted as being real and good called radical two kingdoms theology. And this is the idea that within the church, this is one kingdom where Jesus reigns and we try to follow his word. But outside the church, that's a different kingdom. And it's not run the same way this kingdom is run. And you're actually doing bad things by trying to take this word for this kingdom out into this other kingdom and kind of saying, hey, maybe you should really do what this says. Oh, you can't, wrong kingdom, brother. You have to understand the radical division between the two kingdoms. What both those views then wind up doing is creating a sense among the Christian believer. All we can do is just kind of hang on. We'll circle the wagons as the bad guys advance and as they take over everything. Hey, it's actually good because Jesus is coming. If the bad guys are ruling everything, that means Jesus must be right around the corner. But God didn't call us to do that. It's not just our job to keep ourselves from idols and snag one or two where we can. We've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. 
above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, both in this age and the one to come. That doesn't mean we sit back and say, well, you know, (laughs) none of my business. The foundation of the Lord's throne is righteousness and justice. If righteousness and justice is not what we are about, we have, it's right for us to wonder what kingdom we're part of. The post-millennialist view is there's one kingdom. And because of Christ, there's one king and he's king right now. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus right now. And what that means then is, this is going to get exciting. Wake up, this is about to be an exciting sermon. What that means then is, with one king and one kingdom ruling with one law, word of God, that means that everything belongs to Jesus. Everything in your life is his. Everything that you are involved in is his. And it means there's nothing you can be involved in that Jesus doesn't care about. There's nothing you can be involved in that Jesus doesn't consider under his authority. It's common to hear people say, people who think crazy like I think, it's common to hear us say, Jesus has reached out his hand and he's put it on everything. And he said, this is mine. There's no place where he hasn't said that. It's all belonging to Jesus. And if it's all going to heck in a handbasket and we see it getting worse and worse, all that says is we've got some work to do. Now, how do we do that work? These two views will tend to tell you that the only work you can do for Jesus is work that involves the church. I'm happy when you volunteer and work in the building and all that. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to have need of nursery school people and stuff like that in the future. And I'll be happy to see people volunteer. But let me tell you something. It's no more sacred for you to sit the church nursery than it is for you to babysit your neighbor's kids while they go to a doctor's appointment. It's all about serving Jesus in whatever your hand finds to do, whether it's breaking horses or driving a truck or or fixing cars or whatever it is that God has given you to do. You're serving the one king in his one kingdom. Does that get you excited? That gets me excited. That means that what I have to do during the day, which I frankly hate, I can approach it with a different opinion that says, if this is all there was, if my King Jesus was not over this, then man, this would be the absolute worst job. But the fact that he is over it and the fact that I'm serving him and his kingdom, I can do the job now. And I can do it with all my might. I can do it in a way that seeks to glorify Jesus in every detail. Man. What am, I, what am I telling you? I'm saying, wait till you die and get resurrected and then you can start ruling things. No, I'm telling you, Jesus has called you as believers in Christ to go out right now and start exercising dominion in whatever corner of his kingdom he has placed you.
over whatever thing he's given you to do. Exercise that dominion. To me, that's exciting. Doesn't that get you going? Man, it gets me going. Was it worth 15 minutes of late time? I don't know. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. And we ask your blessing on what's been said here. We ask that we would take it from here and just move in great power in the world that you have made, in the world that you have paid to redeem and are redeeming. We're thankful for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we'll have Todd come up and pronounce our benediction. Please stand. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.